So I know, look, I know a lot of you have come here for tons of different reasons. Um, literally, you can be doing like anything you want right now. Uh, parents aren't, I mean, you can just lie. Uh, and you can, you can post like face, fake Instagram shots and, and say that you're different places, but you're here. And some of you are here probably because your parents told you to get involved in a college ministry. And I respect that. God tells us to honor our parents. That's cool. Um, and some of you genuinely are, are here because you really are hungry for the gospel and you want to grow in your love and knowledge of Jesus. Uh, and amen and praise God. And some of you are here uh, because you just didn't have anything else to do tonight. Uh, and a roommate said, come with me. Um, and what a tremendous act of, of faith to trust your roommate. When somebody did that to me in college, um, they, they, I, when I got my name tag at the door, um, I couldn't find them after that. And so I was sitting by myself in a room where people were raising their hands and I didn't know what was going on. Uh, and it scared me. I, 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 by the way, I didn't grow up in the South. Uh, I grew up in Seattle. Um, you're welcome. But, um, the, uh, but some of you are here looking for a date, surely. I don't know. Bumble's not working out for you. Uh, <laughs> But, but, but for real though, actually, how many of you are here for the first time? Raise your hand. All right. That's great. That's great. Okay, raise your hand if you're looking for a date. No, no, no just kidding. You don't have to raise your hand. Although your odds might go up if you raise your hand. It's honest. People like honesty and humor. Those are the things people like. Um, okay, but listen, this is it's a weird week for me. Um, for those of you that know me, I really like to shoot straight. Um, yeah. Uh, so... It's a weird week when, like, everybody's hopped up on excitement and enthusiasm, and it's, like, fun. And I'm like, I'm going to talk about repentance, you know, or something. Uh, it's just a weird moment for me. Um, because if you look at the social media, if you look at, like, the, the brand-new school clothing everybody's wearing, uh, the very fine school clothes. I found out what a Supreme shirt is today. Um, but it, it, externally, like, everyone has hopped up on energy and having fun. Everything's shiny and new. I'm looking at all the Instagram stories. Maybe you guys use other apps. I just have tolerance for one. Um, and there's a lot of this stuff, but yet I know this is true, that loneliness is so thick just below the surface. And many of us are already disappointed in so many things. We're not even like two days done in school yet. And disappointment has, has sunk in for some of us. Did I make the right decision to come here? Will I make friends? Will I be able to shake old habits and ways of living? Is it really annoying that I'm leaning on this thing? Like a, is that, is that Okay. It feels incredibly comfortable, so I just thought I'd ask. I was going to settle in. So, um, <coughs> you do you. Uh, that's what the Bible says. Um, so these kinds of these kinds of thoughts and questions intersect with questions and thoughts about, about meaning, a purpose of who we are and what our lives are for, of questions and thoughts of faith. And each one of us pulls all of these questions and thoughts. The, the, the loneliness, the disappointment, the hopes, the dreams, the, the did I make the right decision? Am I, am I doing things right? Did I mess up already? What, what am I here for? All those kinds of things. We pull all these things together and we shape them into some sort of story. We can't help it. This is part of what happens as, as human beings. We are, we are uh, creatures who, who thrive on and, and hunger for and just pump out narratives. So, so when, when you text me, and I start to text you back, and you see those stressful three dots. And then they go away, and I don't say anything. You tell a story. In your head, you tell a story. We're wired for this. We, we take data, and we just make a narrative out of it. What will the story of your freshman year be? What will the story of this roommate situation be? What will the story of this romance be? 
What has been the story of my college experience so far? And whatever it is, this semester, I'm going to do my darndest to invite you into a better one. This semester, our sermon series is called A Better Story. And we're going to look um, all through the Bible. In, in Genesis, and the prophets, in the Gospels, in Revelation, at the law, and the people of Israel. And we're going to discover together that God is offering us so much more. This is... This is, this is like hyperbolic language. It's so big. You're in college. You can look it up. Uh, it's big, big language. But, and, it make, and I know that many of us have been trained to be cynics in some way. But it's true. The, the, the story that God is offering us is bigger than any single one of us in this room has ever dared to believe. You might have just come here for a date. God is offering you the inheritance of Jesus Christ. If you got your Bibles, I want you to open them up to Acts chapter 17. If you need a Bible, I will get you one. We have, we have them here. You can take one home. Um, they're cheap. And then you can donate money. We can buy one for somebody else. Um, uh, you can look at it digitally if you want. Acts is um, uh, the fifth book of the New Testament of the Bible. It was written by a guy named Luke as a story of Jesus' continuing work in the world through his apostles. How do I know that, that, that this is a story um, uh, that Luke wrote to tell about Jesus' continuing work? Because this, if you read the beginning of Acts, he says to his friend Theophilus, who he calls by name at the beginning of Acts, he says, in my former letter, I told you about the things that Jesus began to do. And now I'm going to tell you about the things he's continuing to do, paraphrasing. But he tells you this. This is what the book of Acts is about, Jesus' continuing work. I called him an apostle, and an apostle is a big word, and it gets used a lot in the church because the close friends and students of Jesus were called apostles. It's a fancy word for messenger. Apostle means messenger. That's what it means. They were messengers of Jesus. People who shared the message of, Jesus, of who Jesus is and what Jesus is up to in his creation. The apostle Paul was a messenger of Jesus. And the text we're looking at tonight is about the apostle Paul and a 12-sentence summary of a sermon he preached 2,000 years ago. I've never preached a 12-sentence sermon, but we're going to read one, uh, and then I have more sentences. Um, so let, let's pray, and then we'll get into that. Father, um, would, you, would you send your spirit that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So friends, Kalani read this passage of scripture a bit ago from Acts chapter 17. It's a phenomenal passage of scripture. Uh, one of these places, maybe the most impressive um, and singularly complete sermons we have to a group of people who are not Israel or Christians. These are just outsiders. So many of the things that we quote, the sermons that we preach, are actually sermons that are preached to religious elites. To, to, to folks within the community of God's people who are setting themselves over and against others. Or on the other hand, we do see sermons to the poor and the outcast. But this is sort of an interesting crowd, and, and, it, and it communicates maybe something a little bit more directly to the kind of crowd we're in. I don't know if you know this, but most people do not think of college students as the have-nots. And although there are many college students that are hungry, that sleep in their cars and that are homeless... There's something about the, the, the possibilities and the privileges of being in college that, that categorically as a nation and as, as a culture, we don't look at college students as the have-nots. We see people of promise and potential all around us. You're here. And this, this sermon that Paul preaches is to a bunch of people who, who had positions of sort of power and uh, you know, they're sort of, they, they move the glasses up their nose like this. Uh, and they hang out in, in big councils and, and, and debate things because they have the luxury of that kind of lifestyle. It's a fascinating sermon because it's, it gives us a good window 
uh, into the kinds of sermons that might actually be uh, very easy to translate into our cultural moment today. Um, Paul was hanging out in a city called Athens um, while he was waiting for his friends. And, and taking the opportunity, because he was just hanging out, he just said, well, I'm going to take the opportunity while I'm waiting. He began to teach about Jesus in the synagogues, which were the places where Jews had been gathering together. The people of God had been gathering together since the temple was destroyed, like almost 600 years before this. Because the temple didn't exist anymore back then, they started making synagogues. The temple was built later, if you must know history. But now synagogues existed everywhere, and people often just... Uh, met together and worshiped God, uh, and read the scriptures and those kinds of things in the synagogues. So Paul, who was a, a good Jew himself, would go to the synagogues and tell them about Jesus. And then he would go to the marketplace because the conversations carried over into the marketplace. <laughs> and the text tells us literally he would just have the conversations for with anybody who was hanging around. In other words, Paul was a street preacher in this case. Let's look at the text. Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 31. We'll look at just 22 and 23 first here. So Paul, uh, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. I, oh, I should tell you, th th these uh, folks drug him uh, because he was talking about Jesus and Jesus raising from the dead. Uh, I'll say more about that in a minute. But th they drug him to this sort of elevated uh, place called the Areopagus where, where it was a, a big place where like, arguments could happen and people could sort of almost be tried. Think of less of like a courtroom and more like somebody defending their Ph.D. or something. Um, and people would argue and debate in these big settings. So this is where he was, in front of the, this council of people. Um, he addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. <coughs> this God who you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. So Paul's looking around him, and can you imagine what he sees? It would be helpful for you if you can just try to imagine it for a minute. Statues and shrines everywhere. It's like the original interfaith club. It's pluralism at its peak. Imagine walking onto campus into an interfaith room at, UT, at UTC or in the UC and, and seeing crosses and stars of David and Hindu ohms and Wiccan pentacles and wheels of Dharma and everywhere you turn you see diverse religious symbols beyond count. And you find someone with a name tag and you say, excuse me, excuse me, do these really represent like all the students at UTC? Wow. And they reply, well, no, no, not necessarily. Uh, we just want to make sure we didn't miss anything and accidentally offend someone. That, that's what was happening in Paul's context. The only difference between Athens and our culture today is that in Athens they were afraid of offending a god. Today we're afraid of offending each other. You should write that down. Um, Paul, seeing this array of idols and this one... This one unnamed one, so that they didn't offend the unknown God. He looks around, and he doesn't come at them with anger. This street preacher. He doesn't come at them and say, you know, uh, I don't know, um, you're going to hell, or, or something like this. He doesn't roll his eyes that we know of. He says, I see that you're very religious. Of course, literally, they're so religious that they, they thought we should build a statue for the one God or potentially gods we don't know just in case that God's offended. That's how religious they were. Trying to take care of every possibility. I don't believe in dream catchers. I'm just going to hang it there in case. Very religious. 
He looks at the statue and he says, and then at them, and he says, I see that you're religious. The statue you've made to the unknown God, that's the one I'm telling you about. And if you read Acts 17, you'll see just before our passage tonight that he's been stirring crowds. They've been wanting to talk to him, not because he's saying, um, you, you know, uh, pluralistic, uh, easy to swallow faith comments general positivity, that any crowd that has all sorts of religious idols up doesn't mind, like you do you. He's not saying that. He's talking about Jesus being raised from the dead, and they were like, wait, wait, what? A man who is God died, we killed him, and then he raised from the dead. We need, we need to talk. Actually, it's so honest that it says some people just thought he was crazy, he was babbling, and they just dismissed him. Which, which you would too, if you're honest. So some of you, even if, as professing Christians, have yet probably to look into the face of, of the core beliefs that we have as Christians. Do you believe that God actually became flesh? And became one of us? And he was so humble. I mean, those, y'all, y'all, we are not this humble. We constantly look for like socially appropriate ways to one-up each other, to be better than each other. Jesus, who did not consider equality with God, with God to be gr- something to be grasped, poured out that, took on the nature of a servant, even unto death. That, that's a crazy, that the God who made all things died, became a human, and then rose again. I mean, many of us who are Christians have never actually looked in the face of that. We're too busy talking about, like, what age should you baptize somebody? Or something. I don't know. I gotta stop. These aren't in my notes. I should, I should keep going. Um, <clears throat> he's been talking about Jesus. He says, that's the God I'm telling you about, Jesus. And it strikes me that this is the same sermon preached to every agnostic fiber in the universe. The knowledge of the divine, which riddles the stars and resides in our bones. That insatiable hunger for meaning. The cry for help when the ship is sinking. In Latin, the census divinitatis, the sense of the divine, which no matter how hard we try, we cannot seem to shake. The God you know in your bones, but you don't know how to name, I'm telling you about him, and his name is Jesus. He keeps going. Let's look at 24 through 26. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. God, that's wild. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. And he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. This God unknown and unnamed is the one who made everything. This God that you don't know doesn't belong alongside even all the other things you worship. He is as different from them as you are from the breakfast you made this morning. He made everything. He doesn't need to live in the things we make. The things made by the things he made. That's absurd. He gives life and breath to everything and satisfies every need. He doesn't have any needs. So get this, the unknown God that you are worshiping is unlike anything else that you've set up next to him. He's unlike all the other meaning-making tools that you use. 
and unlike all the other mechanisms of blessing that you serve. I had a friend once tell me that he got from his master's program everything that he wanted from God without all the rules. Never mind that without any rules, everything is chaotic and destructive and what's worse, boring. When he told me that I could, when he, when he told me that, that I got everything I wanted from God, from my master's program in counseling, except for without the rules, all I could think is that he worshipped a God that was far too small. And that it's probably a really good idea to give up worshipping a God who can offer you nothing more than what a master's level class can. The Apostle Paul is proclaiming a God who is utterly unlike all the things that we compare to him. He is not like Athena or Dionysus or Hermes. He is not like breathing exercises and positive self-talk and mood-altering drugs. He is utterly different than those things. He made all things. He gives life to all things. He determines the time and the boundaries of the entire cosmos. In other words, this unknown God isn't one among many. He's utterly alone over all that he's made. You, Athenians, give him a few inches of space, but he made you and he made space. Verse 27, his purpose, why did he do all this? Why did he, do, why did he make all things? Why did he determine all things? He doesn't have any needs. So he didn't make all these things because he was lonely. That's saying he has a need. He didn't make all these things because he was bored. He had no needs. Our staff was uh, doing a Bible study today. We were reading um, Psalms, uh, well, Psalm 145. We didn't read multiples. We're not that religious. Um, we read one. Uh, it was wonderful. But we, we talked for quite a bit about just how hard it is to fathom a being who has no needs. So God just made all these things. Well, why? If God didn't need all these things, well, here you go. His purpose, according to Paul, was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And here we go, friends. This unknown God who is above all things and who made all things and needs no things, do you know why he made you? So that you would find him and know him. You might want to please this unknown God and not offend him, but Paul has a better story for them, that this God wants to be known by you. And I can't think, I can't help but think of how powerful and encouraging this truth is for those of us here tonight. First, maybe you think that God just wants you to get in line, to do the right things, say no to things, say yes to things, fix your junk, not mess up again, but there's a better story. God made you that you might find him and know him. In other scriptures, we read that God does not, uh, does God, sorry, that God wants to be known by us, but he also wants to know us. Do you know that God does not desire to hide from you? We'll get to this a little bit more in the coming weeks, but he made all of this in order to meet you, not hide from you. And what's more, he's not far from you. Some of you know this, praise God. But how many of us in this room believe that we've wandered so far from the path? That if we were to turn around and look, God would be off in the distance with some disappointed look on his face. 
Or maybe it's just that he's impossible to find, right? And this will only speak to some of you, but it's, it's, it's a, part of a, a part of a crowd like this that often doesn't get any airplay. And so I just need to speak to some of you for just a minute, okay? I've got to say this. Faith is a gift. It's a gift. You don't go and, and, and work on this on your own and grow it yourself. It is a gift. And for some of us, faith is really hard. Paul's promise isn't that you will feel like God is close. It's just that he is. I, I think of the nights when my little girls don't want to go upstairs alone because they're scared. And I just wish that they knew what I knew, right? That, that they're going to be okay. It's, it's, it's actually incredibly infuriating, infuriating, and I'm not a very good dad in those moments because I'm like go upstairs anyway. You know, like, like I, I'm so certain that you are going to be fine. Um, I, I'm not scared of monsters under your bed. I'm only scared of them under mine. Go to bed. You know, uh, I'm the kind of guy who says things like that, right? And um, thanks, Dad. And, and, but listen, I, I, I wish they knew what I knew. I wish they knew that they were going to be safe and I'm close to them. But they don't feel that. When I say, like, hey, you're going to be okay, they don't immediately go, oh, you know what? I, I feel great. I totally feel like it's going to be fine. And it's not very kind of me, actually, to demand that they feel that. I don't know if you all know this about yourselves. It's actually pretty hard when you feel a thing to just not feel a thing on command. That's a pretty difficult thing to do. They just feel that. And listen, they, can't, they, they, they can have courage and trust me, or they can trust their fear. Those are the two options that they have in that moment. They, they can do that. They can actually, they have an option for how to act in the middle of their feelings, just like you and I do. I don't know how to change their fear, but they have this God-given ability to choose how they'll respond to it. Well, for some of us, feeling the closeness of God might be an ache and a longing that isn't satisfied very much until we see him face to face. And, I, and that may not be most of you, but I, I just over and over again in my pastoral experience with my friends and my own life, I just meet people who like, they sit in a room like this and they go, I look around and it's just see, I see these people, you know, doing this. They lean back on one leg. I don't know what that means. Um, but I, I see them like raise their hands and, they, you know, they, they, or, or, they, or they, they just, they have a Bible that's all marked up or they, they find, you find something to look at, something to look at. And you go, it's just not that easy for me. I, the amount of people I've talked to that have said, I want to believe it's hard is a lot. And I, I just felt like tonight, like that doesn't often get a lot of airplay in, in communities like this. Uh, and, and so I just want to say to those of you who, who really struggle with faith and want to believe in God and want to follow Jesus but don't feel the closeness of Jesus, there's um, some frustration in this potentially, but also grace. Paul doesn't say that you will feel close to God. He just says God is actually close to you. And, and, the, and the lingering thoughts of the followers and friends of Jesus is not that they were so satisfied in what they'd already had in Jesus. It was that what they had in Jesus made them long in a way that was un, insatiable now, long for the time when those, those, those hungers would be filled later. So John, arguably one of Jesus' closest friends, would, would much later in life say like, how much he longed for the day that we would see God face Jesus face to face, and then we will finally know ourselves and know him as he is and as we are. That's 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Fabulous, fabulous moment in the scriptures. Fabulous moment for John, who's writing a letter and stops and has a huge aside because he just wants to, to, to say, oh my gosh, how great is the, the love that God has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. Then he has this honest moment. He goes, but honestly, we don't feel like that a lot, do we? And so for those of you 
who, who struggle with faith, I just want to say the promise is that God is close, not necessarily that they feel it. Okay, i got to move on. For all of us, God made us to know him, and he is not very far from any one of us, and it strikes me that we do not often live as if that's the real story of what's going on. God made you to seek him and find him and know him and to live as if he is not far from you, verse 29. And since that's true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by a craftsman from gold or silver or stone or whatever the modern-day equivalent of that is, a blessing machine, a, a feel-good drug, um, a, a divine being that gives you peace in the middle of an anxiety moment. We shouldn't think of God as, as a tool to use that we actually have mastery over, that we can figure out how to manipulate with our breathing techniques. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. I wasn't joking about repent. Um, so listen, now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. So repentance, it's a big word, gets used a bit, and then we don't like that it's used a bit, so we don't talk about it for a bit. Uh, repentance means to change your mind. That's what it means. It means to change your mind. To turn and resolve to do something counter to what you're doing. This was Jesus' first word in his public ministry. When Jesus went out and started preaching on the streets, the very first word he said is repent. If you've not been living as if the purpose of your life is to know God, and if you've not been living as if God is near to you, there's a better story. So repent of the one that you've been living in and living for. If the way that you've been living does not bring life and wholeness and peace and love to the world, if the way that you've been living does not bring real honor to God or even to you, change your mind. Resolve to live a different way. Repent. And that word, I know it strikes so many of us as negative, and I don't want to soften that. Jesus is, in the word repent, condemning many things. But listen, repent is not first a condemning word in the mouth of Jesus. It's a hopeful word. He's saying it because there is the possibility of a new way of life. To, to a people who are broken, to a people who have looked honestly at the pattern of their life and said, this doesn't produce life. The way in which I, I, I uh, think the way in which I manage money, the way in which I treat people, the way in which I tell stories about my friends, the way in which I utilize social media, the way in which I treat my parents, the way in which I think about culture at large, the way in which I contribute to the, cult, to the societies that I'm in. When Jesus says repent, he is saying, he's condemning the ways which bring about death in, the, in those things, for sure. But when he says repent, that means there's still hope for you to turn, to change your mind and live a better way. And his assumption is that there are people out there that are going to say, praise God that there's a possibility to have a new way. Not people who hear repent and go, that's so intense, no. But that there are people who are going to go, yes, I'm sick. Yes, I need help. Yes, I keep screwing up. My way into Jesus, friends, was that. And it was, I didn't, I didn't go on some weird binge and find myself in a hospital somewhere. That is people's stories. I was, trying to, I was trying to live out this life of like, because of my family train wreck, I was trying to figure out how to be a good man and a good husband, I, to, to have a well-paying job that was respect. I was looking at the, what, what seemed to me like, a, like the most secure version of the American dream that I could live to prove that I'm not screwed up so much. And I hit this moment when I went, I actually can't do it. And even if I could, I don't actually think I'm that good of a guy. And I didn't know if there was any hope, personally. I really didn't know. I just knew that if, if what people said about Jesus is true, then I've got to wrestle with him over this. 
and he bothered me, and so I knew I, I just to figure him out. And so if, if he's if if he just is some weird lunatic in the first century, and a bunch of crazy people who are just hungry for meaning and can't stomach the real problems in the world use Jesus's crutch or something like this, I was like, I just need to figure that out so I can move on with it. And I guess I'll just have to swallow the pill that I'm not a very good guy and settle for something less. Thank God, there's a better story. I didn't know that to be true. I didn't know that to be true. But when Jesus says repent, it's for people like me. Well, I was at the end of my line and going, I don't know. And I read somebody say, hey man, nobody follows Jesus except when every other ship is sunk. And I go, oh yeah, that's like me. <laughs> I can do that. There's a better story for you, friends. Repentance is not first a condemning word, it's a hopeful one. He's saying it because there's a possibility of a new way of life. And so for everyone who's settling or giving up or worn down or who's lost their way, repentance is a word of hope. Hope that your story isn't done and that you're part of one that's better than you can imagine. One that is, and I, I might get in trouble with some of you over this, stick with me. One that is so much more than a personal relationship. One that is so much more than just that you're a sinner and need salvation. That's part of it to be sure. But it's really a story about God and you and the entire cosmos. God has a redemptive plan for all of his creation, not just your soul. You might just be here for a date, but it's God's good pleasure to offer you the kingdom. One of my heroes, C.S. Lewis, uh, it's a problem actually. I call, I call his quotes verses, um, and I named my son after him, uh, so be warned. Um, I actually had to ask Keely, who's running the slides tonight, um, if I've used this too much. And she kind of, I, I was over text, but I got the feeling because I'm telling stories when I read the text. And she was like, I mean, you're going to do it anyway, so whatever. Um, would you put up the quote? I used this a few years ago. It's, it's a very uh, famous one of his, worthy of it. Um, so this is a verse from C.S. Lewis. Um, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. How many of us are playing with mud pies when we're offered so much more? This semester, friends, I want to invite you to consider the true story of God and you and the whole of the cosmos. We're going to start from the beginning next week. Uh, we're going to look at Genesis and the solid fact that God made everything good. And how that is a far better story than what many of us have been trained to believe. I'm very excited to be on this journey with you, friends. Jesus is amazing. And he is worth following with everything you've got. As we learn about him, who he is, who we are, why he made us, and everything else. As we look at the grand story of the whole universe. As we comb through the pages of scripture this semester and look at the God who made everything and is redeeming everything, I pray that he stirs up desires in you and that you become harder to please, that you settle less, that you hunger for more, and that you say yes to him. And that if anything is holding you back, that you would turn from that. Because the God who made everything made you and wants to know you and is not very far from you. And if that's true, anything's possible.